0: Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers, I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Today is a special episode for several reasons. First, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Professor Omar Boum of the UCLA Department of Anthropology. Professor Boum is one of the world's leading experts on the history and society of Morocco, from which he comes. We call on this expertise as we engage in conversation with Mr. André Azoulay, who is counselor to King Mohammed VI of Morocco and president of the Essaouira Mogador Association. Mr. Azoulay has had an extraordinary life and career, beginning as a Jew in his hometown of Essaouira, as a young political activist, as a senior banker in Paris, as a highly valued political advisor to kings, and as a globally renowned diplomat and advocate for peace. It is a great pleasure to have him with us today on Then and Now to discuss his life, the state of the world, and Morocco's place in it. Welcome to you, Mr. Azoulay.
1: Thank
2: you so much, dear David.
0: And welcome to you, Omar.
2: Thank you, David, and thank you, Mr. Azoulay.
0: So let us begin. Uh, Mr. Azoulay, you were born in the Moroccan city of Essaouira to a Jewish family. Can you tell us about your life and your upbringing in Essaouira?
1: Well, I feel so privileged to tell you how exciting, rewarding, and so meaningful was my Jewish childhood in Esauira Mogador. First of all, let me just remind you that Esauira Mogador was in the 19th century until the early 20s the only city i know in islam from morocco to indonesia who was the majority i mean the population at that time was around 2000 to 22000 people morocco was very small demographically speaking at that time and esawira was maybe 22 23000 people and the Jewish community at its peak was 16,000 people. So usually, Islam don't accept a non-Muslim majority on its soil. Esawira was one of the very few exceptions, maybe the only one regarding a Jewish majority. That's why I feel responsible to share it with you this, I mean, longer, uh, memory and uh, being Jewish in this city was just being a normal citizen, but with this capillarity with Islam, which was at every moment in our daily life, in the street, in the schools, in the I mean social life in the city. And I remember that walking in the Medina and hearing something which sounds like a synagogue prayer could be also coming from a mosque, because we were praying on the same musical temple, the Andalusian one. And walking on this period of my own history, I was fascinated by the fact that I found a very very strong relation between what we name zawia or congregation or uh, something like that Sufi congregation in the city and the Jewish Sufi I mean rabbis or just people because we were also at that time in the zawia a very rich Kabbal Kabbalist, let's say, study center. Center of Jewish mysticism. Yeah. But the two, I mean, the Muslim Sufis and the Jewish Sufis were connected to discuss together, to maybe sing or pray together. Do you think that is why Do you think
0: that is why Esauiro was so unique? Could it have been because of that mystical background? The Sufi presence? And the Kabbalah?
1: I, yeah, my, 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 my feeling is it was central in this proximity and in this uh, I mentioned before between Muslim and Jewish. It was not only that, but it was also a key part of it. And uh, till now, I mean, we don't have any real uh, scientific work to try to understand then how far, how long, how meaningful, meaningful it was for both. And that's why in our new uh, study center, revisiting relate the history of relation between Islam and uh, Judaism, we will make it as one of the, on, on the top of our agenda, to try to know more, to try to uh, re construct I mean this part of our uh, common uh, legacy I see I see it as very important
2: so I have a question what kind of education did you get in this majority uh, Jewish city was it a was it a traditional education or a French Alliance Israeli Universal education
1: no, no it was first traditional. But you know, at that time we didn't know what does it mean to to have a traditional Jewish education because, I mean, believe it or not, we never heard about Orthodox or Ashkenazis and Sephardis. We were just see ourselves as a Jewish person. I mean, it was as simple as that, not by ignorance, but we didn't enter this kind of, uh, you know, internal debate or a split or a different school of South. It was just how to be uh, Jewish and to have our Jewishness as part of the global legacy of, uh, of the city. So I joined the Alliance school later. But I mean, it was not to learn about my Judaism. It, w- it was just to go to school. And I was teached by my rabbis regarding my own Judaism. I was teached by my some of my uh, uh, teachers, Jewish teachers, for this part of uh, my constituency. But uh, again, the way I was teached by my rabbis, especially by my Jewish teachers, was to be first taking care of the one who is not Jewish in front of me. My Jewishness was depending of the other. And I I remember very precisely, very clearly, even at my age, how I was prepared to my bar mitzvah by my rabbi saying you are Jewish because you are taking care of the others, of the one who is in front of you. If he is not able to enjoy the same dignity the same freedom, the same justice than you, then at that time, your Judaism is at stake. And you cannot just be watching or just looking on this situation without acting. At that time, maybe your Jewish will be at stake.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it seems like um, we we may have lost that important teaching, uh, that fundamental Jewish teaching. Unfortunately, so uh, David, we have
1: to retake
0: over. Indeed, we do. Indeed, we do. Um, let's continue, however, further in your life. Um, as a as a teenager, um, you, like many uh, of your time and age, uh, made your way to radical politics. Um, initially, in the communist party. Um, and then uh, into socialism. And we know that there were um, a good number of Jews prominently represented in the Moroccan Communist Party. Our own PhD student uh, at UCLA, Alma Heckman, now a professor um, at the University of California at Santa Cruz, has just written a book on this topic. Um, I'm curious about what drew you to radical politics uh, when you were a teenager. Well, I
1: I, 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 I joined the Moroccan Communist Party at the age of 16. So it was uh, already, I was not uh, just a teenager, but I mean, 16 years. Uh, but it was, I mean, believe it or not, it was one of my professors who was communist. And he gave me the opportunity to meet uh, the uh, general secretary of the Communist Party. Uh, he passed away, Mr. Aliyata. Was a very decent person, and in our first meeting, and it was not just a face-to-face meeting. We were a group of students listening to him. He came to visit us, and we were attending one of his conferences. Uh, in, uh, in In it was not in the I have my college Jadida, in Jadida, a city near Esawera. So, and he started by explaining not only to me but, but to all the attendants were Muslims, largely, saying, well, diversity is in the Moroccan DNA. And uh, I'm happy that there is one of the uh, Moroccan Jew attending the meeting. And I want to have him very comfortable. Because I mean, uh, the Jews were in Morocco I mean they landed in Morocco long time before the Arabo-Muslim civilization. So he is part of our country and he is equal to all of us. So just I want to tell him to feel comfortable. We know, and it was in the late 50s. He said, Well, there, there is the Middle East and there is Israel and there is the Palestinians, but we have to deal with this uh, uh, file, with this situation uh, with no... I mean, we have to speak clearly and to name things. We have two national movements, the Jewish one and the Palestinian one, looking for the same land. And uh, we need a political answer to that. We need a political way out of this situation. But, Mr. Azul, I mean, he tell me, Andre, you feel, feel, feel at ease. There are two national movements, and it's not religion, it's not civilization, it's a political file which needs a, a political answer. And at that time, it makes me relax. And I see, well, at the Communist Party, they are naming things. And they are opening a door. Why not to try to work on it? And it was my way to enter the uh, Moroccan Communist Party. And uh, to tell you the truth, I felt gifted when, I, when, when uh, I joined this organization. It was not for long. It was just for two years. I uh, felt gifted to have the chance to... Let's say uh, know more about the Marxism. And Marxism was not just an ideology for me; it was a different way to think, to rationalize, to enter another world. I didn't and really uh, understood at the beginning, but after that, I was, you know, discussing with friends who were not uh, Marxists, who didn't have the same experience than me. I was always, you know, it was easy for me to confront challenges, to discuss things. With, they were not as prepared as I was. And I understood at the end that being Marxist at my age, at that age, helped me a lot. And uh, fortunately, my children or grandchildren, like myself, to have this kind of experience at uh, the age of 16 and uh, so it was a great, a, great, a great school for me and uh, I felt uh, stronger and uh, more well prepared uh, because of that. But as I said, it was just for two years and then I joined the Socialist
2: Party. So Mr. Azulai, later you became a banker. How would you describe your political and economic worldview today?
1: Well, being a banker doesn't mean that I am an an, uh, economist expert. Uh, I was uh, with one of the most important uh, merchant and investment bank in Europe, and it was, frankly, a very, very rewarding experience. And uh, to it gave me also the capacity. To be more uh, concrete, less ideological, and uh, to try to make the difference of, I mean, the meaning of uh, a market economy and a planified economy. And uh, it, it, was, it was really a great school for me. Uh, now, I mean, if you're Kish, uh, uh, Omar, you, you, you mean uh, because of the situa- I mean current situation? uh how do i
0: this, well I may jump in and, and and just ask maybe go back a step um you, you we because we left you when you had just joined the socialist party and in the wake of that you actually were arrested um so I'm curious to hear uh about your arrest, what that experience was like, and then maybe the arc of your life from socialism to what would seem on the face of it as a as a senior banker uh capitalism
1: yeah the uh, i mean uh I have also this privilege. I was really lucky in my, in my, in my, in my life. Uh, at the age of 22, I was finishing my universities in Paris. And I was asked by uh, a, 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 a media group, an independent media uh, company in Morocco uh publishing a daily newspaper economic daily newspaper and uh because in my universities i was i learned uh uh, economy international relations and also journalism. so i was one of the very few at that time morocco was just emerging as a free country after the french mandate and uh, i have this double uh, let's say, training uh, economy, finance and journalism and political relations. So they proposed to me at the age of 22 to be the chief editor of the only economic, daily, independent newspaper in Morocco. I said, Whoa, wow, wow. <laughs> it's great. Uh, and uh, I, I joined it immediately. And uh, I started by Uh, July 16, 1963, at four o'clock. I'll never forget. And I was arrested at six the same day. I said, "Whoa!" I'm so. But uh, uh, at that time, because I mean, I mean, the the uh, I was arrested the day the Moroccan Socialist Party was. Uh, besieged, I mean, in their headquarters. I mean, the leadership was besieged at its headquarters in Casablanca. And uh, when the police arrived at this at the office of the Moroccan Socialist Party, I was called by the leader of the party, who was a friend, saying, "Now I'm calling you not as a militant, but as not as an activist, but as a, a, a editor-in-chief of one of the major." Newspaper, but I have to tell you that if you agree to come and to see what is going on, you probably will be arrested uh, when you met with me in my office. Everyone, you know, uh, coming or uh, finishing uh, his visit at the headquarters, will be arrested. I know. I said, "Okay, I will do my job." So I came to him. I stayed one hour thirty minutes in the headquarters. And the police was waiting for me at the door. So I was arrested. But I was arrested. It was not I mean, a big affair. And uh, I was uh, freed uh, during uh, the night. And uh, uh, it was quite an experience, because I was in the same cell than uh, who was who was one of the leaders of the party, and was uh, in the 90s, the first prime minister of the alternance government. I mean, the uh, government who was uh, led by the Socialist Party. So it was, It was. I, I was at that time uh, 20, uh, 20, 25 years old, no, 22 years old, uh, and uh, I felt uh, really angry if I was <laughs> Arrested at that age and editor in chief of one of the major daily newspaper. So I'm maybe there is something uh, uh, great coming to me. I mean, and uh, it it was a a gateway for so many things later on. So I I said, I I mean, during my this very short experience as editor in chief, it was uh, three years for three years. And then I was during this period. Again, having problem with the police, three times. And uh, finally, the uh, daily, the paper was forbidden. It was closed by the government, and I was exiled in Paris. And then I left Morocco, and uh, the bankers which I joined later, the Bank uh, Taiba, they were one of the key banks in Morocco already, and they were following my uh, editorials, my columns, and they knew what I am, who I am. So they proposed to me later on to join the bank and uh, to be in charge of this uh, department of evaluation and political, uh, evaluating the political risk in the region, the North Africa and Middle East at large, and the uh, Western African countries. And I started with the bank. In the year 1966, and for 25 years,
2: Andre, it, your your experience in Morocco, living in a Jewish-Muslim city, uh, has affected you a lot, and that's that. For me, as somebody who has been following you and uh, writing about your work in Essaouira, I I see when you when you get to pa- when you got to Paris. Even as a uh, an employee of the bank, uh, Paris you became involved in Jewish-Muslim relations and Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So, in 1973, you founded Identité Dialogue. Yes one of the one of the first serious attempts for a political solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Yes, what led you to start this project with your Palestinian friend? Isam Sartawi.
1: Yeah. May I just, I mean, maybe being a little longer because it's very important. For me, it was a major, major period and a major breakthrough. Identity and dialogue, uh, I mean, there are two main goals. The one named identity and the second one, dialogue. Identity, why? At that time, Moroccan Jews were so deeply alienated culturally and uh, let's say, in their normal Jewish life. At that time, Moroccan Jews were changing their name, their name, because I mean, they felt almost guilty to be born in Morocco or to be unidentified to Morocco because of all this stigmatization, ostracism, and uh, ignorance of the other Jewish constituencies, largely in Israel, but also in the Western world. And in place of being named Azulez, they preferred it will be more comfortable and easier to be named, uh, I don't know, Finkelstein or uh, uh, something else. in place of being born in born uh, in Marseille, or uh, makes their lives easier. And could you imagine something more tragic than just cutting the link with yourselves? And it was at that time, maybe, I mean, you heard and you read things about it, radical movements in Israel named Black Panther, Black Panthers, or Wadi Salib uh, people. I mean, this, the Moroccan Jews in Israel they were named Morocco which means the people with a knife. Uh, I mean, it was terrible. So we said we cannot just be, continue to be watching what is going on. It will mean it will be exposed the whole Moroccan Jewish Moroccan civilization, history, memory, legacy. I said we have to do something. It was for identity, and then dialogue. Dialogue was for us, because we were, I mean, activists already, uh, uh, to try to give a chance to the two national movements I mentioned before, and to start thinking of the way out by working for two-state solution, living side by side. I met for the first time Abu Mazen in 1974. It was, I mean, at that time, you know, not easy for a Jewish person. And I'm not exa- with exa- the exact profile of the people who were demonstrating in the streets and everything. I was part of the, let's say, institutional uh, uh, community uh, working being vice president of a bank, and, uh, uh, well, not the usual suspect, if I may say that. So uh, I met with him, and I have to tell you, because I'm still alive, alive, that what Abu Mazen told me in 1974 was exactly what he implemented later on. He is a very decent person because he kept his word. And I want to testify and to just to, to, to mention that. And you know, at that time, it was, I mean, secret meetings, a uh, lot of things to. You uh, were the only one of the very few, I mean, let's say, probably the only one in the. Uh, Organized Jewish community and in the business community, in the uh, elite, if I may say that quote unquote, uh, who decided to be in touch with the PLO. And it was a kind of, you know, trahison, I mean, trahison uh, compared to what was. Treason. Yeah, exactly. Treason. So, uh, and uh, Yasser Arafat, which I met also. Uh, they appointed aysem satawi who was in charge of relation inside the PLO with the jewish world they appointed Isam satawi to be my interlocutor for and he for i mean we worked together for 8 years and he was assassinated he was killed at in mm, a meeting of the international socialist organization in Lisboa and he was he was sitting just beside Simon Perez and the killer I mean he could have killed Shimon or himself or Aissam exactly at the same moment. They were sit, they were sitting side by side. So Aissam was a very very important person for me. He teach me the complexity of the Palestinian file. I teach him about the complexity of Judaism and the Jews regarding the situation in the Middle East. And it was for me an important period. And unfortunately, he paid by his life, his commitment to try to give a chance to adjust. And the last between the, Palestinians, between the Palestinians and the Israelis. This is,
0: this is 20 years before the Oslo peace process. Exactly. 20 years. 1993, we remember that scene in the White House exactly. when President Clinton brings together 20 years before exactly. the year of the Yom Kippur, the October yeah. War, a time yeah. when Jews and Arabs were at war with each other. And there you are with your Palestinian friend uh, tr- talking about the two-state solution. It's really quite remarkable.
1: Uh, David, I, can, I will not say friend. Uh, I respect those person. And it was not just a a, a friendship work. Uh, We were addressing the political issues, very complex, very sensitive, but so important. And it was between people, I mean, linked by mutual respect, listening to each other, trying to find a way out, a decent way out. out. But it was not friendship. It was not friendship. I I, I was a friend of Islam Sertawi, which I respected a lot. I'm still in touch with his family. His daughter is working at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in France. And his wife, she's a doctor. She's still living in Paris. So
0: apropos identity, um, your your group and dialogue, I'm curious what strands of your identity you brought to that work? Because you have a very complex face. You're Jewish by birth, you're Essaouiran by hometown, you're Moroccan by citizenship, you're French by culture. What brought you to that work in particular? All the strands of your identity, um, one piece of it, your that Jewish teaching that your rabbis taught you as a young boy that you know caring for the other is the essence of Judaism. What, what brought you to that work?
1: Was. Uh, I mean, well, I, I, I think um, I, I felt in danger, you know. I was always very, very proud and very committed to my legacy, to my history, to my heritage at large. And uh, I thought that it could have been uh, suicidal just to let things going on that way, and uh, losing this civilization. I I felt, I mean, responsible to try to keep it alive and to try to give a chance to my fellow Jewish compatriots from Morocco or to my Muslim uh, compatriots to uh, really take over, to try to uh, uh maybe develop another rhetoric, and also for Israel to avoid a tragic confrontation uh, between the communities because i mean, as I told you the black Panthers it was it it was not uh, uh easy it was i mean violent i mean there were demonstrations there were people who were hurt, maybe killed during this period because of their fight and uh I mean, the, I mean, the stability of the Israeli society, the safety of the country, the unity of the country of Israel was also at stake. And uh, I, I said, I mean, the only way is to try to restore the respect, the dignity of the Israeli Uh, Who were Moroccan born or belonging to Morocco uh, by uh, trying to calm down by uh, just, I mean, respect and by knowledge, by telling the Israelis, uh, I mean, part of our history and uh, civilization. Let me mention. Something which I was confronted to at, at the very beginning of this uh, uh, of this uh, work. One of the most fam- one of the most famous columnists in the mid 70s in Israel was a columnist in Haaretz, Mr. Dankner. He was the one who, referring to the Moroccans, said that. I mean, his ancestor, Mr. Dankner's ancestor, were Freud, Freud, and Stein, and so many others. And the only ancestors he knew about the Moroccan Jews were the monkeys and the donkeys of the Atlas Mountains. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? I mean, it was in the written or said by one of the most highly respected columnists in Israel. So he was fired because of that. And things started to change, fortunately. But it was a hard work, it took years. But finally, I think that, I mean, the basic damage were repaired. And uh, I think that we can be proud of you know, the work done by identity and dialogue, but it was was also the beginning of the new new rhetoric, not only in Israel or in the diaspora, but also in Morocco. It was something different which started at that time, and we are now, I mean, uh, uh, getting the fruits of it by now. No, unfortunately not, but we give a chance to this, uh, I mean, perspective, but we spoil so many opportunities. We missed so many rendezvous, especially in Morocco. I mean, remember the Casablanca conference in 1994? Everything was arranged at that time. More than 100 countries were attending by head of states this conference. It was a peak of all the peace processes. And as you know, the major of those processes were also forged, discussed, prepared in Morocco at the request of the Palestinian National Movement, at the request of the PLO.
2: So Andre, you you mentioned the 1994 conference. By then, yes. by that time, you, you're already an advisor to King Hassan II. Uh,
1: yeah and I was uh, Omar I was you know uh, this conference was largely inspired by uh, uh, at that time the American administration and the uh, Israelis uh, the Itzhak Rabin government and Shimon Peres and also I mean the Palestinian leadership and we worked in the steering committee for two two years I, I was with uh, uh, I was with this uh, steering committee with uh, Shimon Peres, with uh, Abu Mazen and others, with Abu Ala, and with uh, also I mean Mr. Christopher was Secretary of State at that time, and uh, it was not easy, but finally we got it, and my feeling is that if. Peace, realistic. It was because of Casablanca, because it was a, a mix of politics, economy, culture, and uh, civil societies. And, and uh, you know, just the last point on that: Abu Ala, who was prime minister, uh, uh, Palestinian prime minister, he wrote in its his memory that because of Casablanca. Conference was the only one who really achieved a concrete process to make a just and a, uh, a just peace between the Palestinians and, uh, and the Israelis. And if it's Hak Rabin was a few months later assassinated, I think that Casablanca conference was the not the cause, but those who didn't want really to see this peace completed and achieved, understood at that time that because of Casablanca, it was the last chance for them to explode the whole process by killing the Israeli prime minister.
2: So, so by then, by 1994, you're already an advisor to to King Hassan II. Can you tell us a little bit why did you make the decision by the late 1980s, early 1990s to go back to Morocco to serve as advisor to King Hassan II. And how Essaouira also became part of now of your project to foster more this interfaith dialogue project that you've started to think about in the 1970s uh, with the, the founding of Identity Dialogue.
1: Yeah, it's two different. Question, but I will uh, uh, answer. Well, uh, first of all, I was appointed by His Majesty the King Hassan II in 1991. Uh, I, I was uh, I started my work at the Royal Cabinet at that time, which means that uh, I am in this uh, responsibility for now more than 30 years, and uh, I'm very proud because I think. That I'm the first uh, in this kind of, I mean, long, long experience. So, I mean, I was not appointed by His Majesty the King because I was Jewish. He knew about my work at the bank, and I was not a good, I mean, banker because I was Jewish. It was because of my expertise. It was because of my experience. And the king was very clear on that point from the very beginning, saying, I'm calling on you as a Moroccan to join our team to help and to be part of our economic and financial challenges to give the chance to Morocco to move forward. It was clear cut, crystal clear from the very beginning. Uh, but he knew, because I was not having my Jewishness in my pocket. It was I was an activist, public activist. I mean, every, every, everyone knew about it. And uh, I met, also, many times, His Majesty before that. Because, as you remember, as I told you, I left Morocco not in really friendly, <laughs> Uh, situation, uh, and I discussed with him with him what happens to me, why the my the newspaper was uh, closed, and uh, oh, oh, everything was discussed, and uh, we were clear. The two of us were clear. And when I created and I launched Identity and Dialogue, I launched it based on my Moroccan legacy, and I asked his majesty at that time in the 70s during one of our professional meetings if you allow me to refer to morocco as the root and the center and the main aspiration of what we want to achieve through identity and dialogue so morocco was always at that time central and prior in our i mean uh, in our activities uh, uh, through identity and dialogue, you know, dialogue. but uh, he knew me he knew me he knew my experience at the bank and he knew also my my uh, commitments as a Jewish activist so everything was clear But I was called not as a Jewish court person uh, a juif de court you know
2: shame shame uh, a Jew is a is an advisor. And uh, I was called in a
1: very precise uh, mandate. And uh, I was very proud of that. But also, uh, I never hide my Jewish uh, identity, history. In the country, I was proud of it. And, uh, and uh, my fellow compatriots were also proud to tell, and His Majesty the same, that uh, I mean, we can be Moroccan Muslim and Jews. Or Jewish, and be uh, helping and serving the country in the same condi- condition, in the same format. Uh, so, uh, and uh, still the case, but you know, I'm more than ever, maybe, committed to try first to help the refoundation of the Moroccan Jewish history, identity and uh, part and role in the Moroccan national history. And we move forward year after year. You know I, I will not list all what, we had, what was achieved, but the vote of the new constitution in July 2011 mentioning in its foreword that Morocco as it is today as a nation, as a people, as a civilization was also First nursed by the Amazigh civilization the Jewish civilization later later on by the arabo Muslim civilization and all what we know so it was a major major step and a major breakthrough and then now when we are discussing in a time which we are you know part I and mean, when we when we are developing a real cultural revolution in our educational system. You heard about what was signed in the Sauvira by the ministry by the Minister of Education and our foundation and association to rewrite and to revise the uh, scholars curricula to teach the Moroccan children their the Jewish part of their history, national history. It's key. It's fascinating. And you know that you have now hundreds of uh, clubs or association inside the colleges uh, uh, devoted, first of all, created by the uh, children, by, 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 by the students, and uh, uh, by it's, it's something which is uh, bottom up. Uh, to try to know more about the Jewish part of their identity and their history. It's fascinating. I have been in the colleges, and it's, I hope that one day you will experience the same things by listening to those teenagers uh, explaining how proud they are and how excited they are to know their diversity. And it's true for Judaism. It's true also for the Amazigh civilization, for our African roots, and our European, let's say, Andalusian uh, roots, as it, uh, as it is said in the foreword. And it makes, I mean, when we launched it, this process two months ago, I, was, I received hundreds of messages or mails from the US, Europe, and Israel saying, well, you are now doing things which, not any more possible to do, in Europe or in the U.S. I was, I was so. Maybe it's too much, but he said how this kind of process, I mean implemented by Morocco, is so rewarding and so important nobody imagine in islam by today because of all what you know we are in a time and we are in the in a world community where denial is everywhere where clash is everywhere and we in morocco are doing exact are following exact exactly the opposite way
0: so so why um why why morocco why the moroccan exception and as I ask that question, I wonder about your own life choice. You are, after all, a citizen of the world. Uh, you are perfectly at home in Paris. You are at home in New York. Uh, you are at home in many places. But you decided to come back to Morocco. Um, and you're a great Moroccan patriot. What is the Moroccan way? What is the, that exceptional quality about Morocco that draws you back and that gives you hope and that makes you so committed to uh, using the Moroccan experience as as a kind of method to bring people together.
1: It's not, it's not by accident and it's not a a posture and it's not cosmetic, it's not a, a, a story of the day. In fact, we worked a lot and the situation was not as easy or as clear as it is today, not a long time ago, just a few years ago. And I will not forget that I was myself stigmatized, ostracized by hundreds of thousands of my fellow compatriots when they were demonstration in the streets, in the streets after you know the bombing uh, in Gaza or uh, or a confrontation, or a terror attack in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem, uh, and they were, I mean, they were demonstrating, saying "shame, shame." And Omar could translate it maybe yahudi uh, uh, mustashar," uh, advisor. Yeah, but this time is over. It, that it is over, not by miracle, and it is not over because where the Moroccan people decided to be uh, uh, seen by the others as, you know, good people. It was a long, long work of education, of pedagogy, of, you know, leveraging all what is possible to leverage through culture. Culture is the miracle therapy, you know? It makes everything possible. It's doing what politics didn't know how to deal with. It's doing what, uh, I mean, even, uh, I mean, you cannot buy it. You cannot get it by war. You cannot get it by tanks. Just give a chance to the people to be in the context and in a climate in a mass atmosphere, or you know giving a chance to all to listen to the others and to the others to speak out and to be respected in, even in their differences, it took a lot, a lot of time, it took years and more than years, and it's still not finished, but I think that we are now close to. I mean, something which could be uh, irrefragable uh, in terms of, uh, ma- in the mindset of our people. But we have to continue. We have to uh, try to give a chance to education. Education is key. And we have also to be ourselves coherent. I mean, if we are giving a new chance to the Moroccan uh, Judaism as a legacy, we cannot be on the path You know, Omar, there is no schizophrenia in it. I mean, you cannot, on one side, calling on your legacy and your values and your heritage for yourself and don't act with coherence, for instance, Regarding the situation in the Middle East, I mean, Morocco made very clear his position. And we are definitely for a two-state solution. It's the only way to give a chance to real stability, security, safety to the state of Israel. And the same for the Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian to have living side by side with, with Israel, a state with the same criterias of dignity, of justice, of freedom. It's a win-win game. And there is no alternative to that for the Israelis or neither to the Palestinians. So it's a long way, still a long way. But I think that uh, uh, Morocco, because of all what we discussed before, have the capacity, the ability, the legitimacy to help this process and to give a chance to this, uh, I mean, to this vision, because for the sake of all. Well,
2: Andre, you you made you made Isaura a, a well, you played a key role in making Sawira a destination, cultural destination, with the a number of festivals you helped establish going back to the 1990s and. Um, both cultural festivals that bring the Andalusian heritage, the African heritage, and the Middle Eastern North African heritage. And recently, a widely circulated video of King Mohammed VI visiting your at Dakira in 2019, right before COVID 19 started, made the global news. What is your at Dakira? And what does this institution mean to Moroccan Jews today and to hopefully and potentially the world?
1: Yeah, you know, Bedekira is very unique. Bedekira means the house of memory, the house of history. And, you know, we have this. Uh, uh, I mean, the two of you, uh, they, they visited us before the inauguration of Beit Dakira by His Majesty by January 15, 2000, uh, 2020. Uh, we want to have an address, to have a place, to have an institution where, where I mean, Moroccans, Jews and Muslims will have a chance to know more about their own diversity, about what was for more than two millenaries the Jewish presence in Morocco, and uh, to also try to know more about this a very, very unique relation Islam and Judaism have developed for a long period in Israel. It was a kind of an open laboratory with thousands of people side by side, everywhere in the street, everywhere in the daily life for a very long time. Uh, and uh, to know also, I mean, what was the perception, the situation, the problem, uh, I mean, uh, we were confronted too. I mean, we have a long and a heavy history book with a large number of happy pages, but also some black pages. I mean, I will, I will not let anyone telling me my own history with the, what was happy, what was nice, what was smart, and also the difficult time we were confronted to. Uh, as all the civilization, on, you know, when you are uh, speaking or revisiting centuries, millenaries, it's always very diverse. I mean, it's up and down everywhere in the world. You cannot be a civilization if we were, you are not confronted to this kind of you know disrupted uh, civil uh, periods. So we need to know the reality. We need to know the full book of our history. We need to know what went well, what was wrong. We need to be able to a full knowledge of everything related to the Moroccan diversity. We feel stronger. We feel richer. We feel at ease when we know everything. And this part of the Moroccan history, identity, legacy, heritage, the Jewish part, was didn't exist till a very recent period in the educational curriculums, in the literatures. I mean, it was the absence for a very long time, too long. Now this time is over. And we have decided, and it is what makes me so proud as a Moroccan. We are recovering. We are coming back. We are refounding this uh, part of ourselves by education. There is no other alternative to that. Education, culture, not the emotional, not only the emotional culture or the aesthetic one, culture when it addresses your mindset, when it gives you the chance to express yourself, not only uh, by you know reading a book, but lively, concretely, Humanly, you touch it, they touch you. I mean, you have been at this Andalus festival in the Saurra, right? it's the only one in the world, and I want it when I created it 17 years ago. I want to have a festival where the stages are only for the singers, musicians, dancers, Muslim, and Jews with a guideline transversal with the flamenco. At the beginning, we were a few hundreds. Now we have thousands, Jews and Muslims, coming from Morocco but from all over the world just for the chance to together, to sing together, to perform music together, and to enjoy it. No one was you know, asking you to do it. You are coming by yourself. And year after year, there are more and more people. It's fascinating. And it's not again cosmetic. It's very powerful. And we know on the you know, during this process, 17 years, how people arrived and how different they left the city after the festival. You you I mean, I'm sorry, maybe. I'm a little passionate about it, but it's something which fascinates me. It's so easy, so clear. We know how to deal with that. Why not to make it everywhere? Why not to make it larger? Why not to clone it everywhere? Why not to repeat it everywhere? Well, I guess the answer
0: would be to play devil's advocate because religion is... A force of exclusion as much as is a force of inclusion, and I wonder if you sometimes feel as Camus um, uh, portrayed so so powerfully, like Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill only to have it roll back down. Um, you've talked about education and culture as keys to fostering a true interfaith ecumenical spirit, and the local experiment and Esawira seems to be remarkable. But when one looks out in the world, one sees religion as a force of exclusion, of stigmatization, of demonization, of vilification. Are you confident that this way can lead to a true understanding?
2: Yes, yes.
1: Uh, but... Let me also share with you I mean some concern I have. I think that we have to leverage the momentum. A momentum is something which could evaporate tomorrow morning. And we, if we are not able to make it not only durable, but to spread as largely as possible this campaign. And I, I mean, I, I agree with your evaluation, but I will add one concept or one word, to tell the truth. Not, not to be, to resist any frilosity or any kind of frilosity by not discussing the difficulties, the differences, the opposition. But to put everything on the table, to, everything could be discussed, and not to miss this opportunity by, you know, developing this capacity or ability to listen to the others, to give them a chance to express their differences, and just to create a process of, you know, mutual mutual listening and maybe later mutual understanding. That's 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 the way, but it needs to because of this momentum to be bigger to be more largely shared or duplicated or uh, again repeated maybe differently but don't miss this rendezvous don't miss this momentum it's uh, don't miss the possibility also to uh, address it on uh, uh, a non-short-term, non let's say, uh, methodology. I mean, short-terms could be you know uh, possible or legitimate for other issues. But when we need this kind of uh, dynamic, you need time. And you need to give a chance to the people to understand. And when they understand, to express themselves. And when they express themselves, to find the common road, to to find the common way.
2: Andre, how do you you see the future of the Israel-Palestine conflict in the wake of the Abraham Accords? Do Morocco and Moroccan Jews in particular have a special role to play?
1: You know, first of all, I mean, I think that you have to understand the Moroccan position, not only in the context of the Abraham Accord, you know. Uh, for us, we are not a newcomer in this process. It started decades uh, ago. We have uh, a, a specific and uh, uh, a Moroccan way to deal with this uh, conflict. No, I mean. Uh, I think it needs to be again seen as a specific approach, and uh, Morocco uh, has its own uh, vision perspective. Morocco was a key player years long, long time ago, long time ago, and it was a a pioneer, a pioneer uh, requested by both the Palestinians and the Israelis to try to to work on a a, a reasonable and uh, you can adjust uh, uh, peace on both sides. Uh, I think that uh, Morocco could play a real, a real, a real positive role. But uh, it was clearly said after the announcement of the uh, this uh, normalization with Israel that Morocco belong to the two-state perspective, two-state solution, and we don't see any alternative. And we do all what we can to restore this peace spirit, to rebuild this peace dynamic. And uh, I'm personally, as you mentioned before, uh, you know, Doing all what I can, doing my very best for close now to 50 years when I started identity and dialogue. And I'm not really even at my edge to give up. I mean there is no alternative to that. I don't see any passing for one-state solution or kind of merging. But to merge something, you need to exist first. You cannot add one to zero. It will be remain. it will be. T- at the end, you will have just one. But we need to be two. And you, you usually, Shimon Peres was saying you need to be two to dance tango. So uh, that's the point.
0: <laughs> so maybe as our final question, uh, Mr. Azoulay, um, you've had an extraordinarily rich and diverse career, um, which is still in going strong. Um, Two questions. One, do you have any regrets about things you did not do that you would like to have done or things uh, that you might have done differently? And second, when your time is done, what do you want your legacy to be?
1: Very <laughs> not, not easy. I made a lot of mistakes. I'm sure that I missed so many opportunities. I feel very frustrated not to have the chance to see what was my life challenge, to give a chance to the two state solution. Uh, Well, as I said, I'm not ready to give up, but it's, uh, I mean, I'm clear in my mind, myself, that we at least spoiled so many chances. So I hope that. We'll see it one day, not in a long time, that is near, I mean, in the very near future, I hope. And I see that this dynamic which is taking place now will give, will will find a way to have on this train, on this, uh, on this railway, <laughs> a peace railway, a wagon with the Palestinians on it, uh, uh, and uh, I will try to do all what I can do where I am to make it possible. So uh, you said that your last, your 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 single question was
0: your legacy. What 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 mark would you like to leave on the world?
1: No, to, to the world. I mean, what I would like to the uh, legacy I would like to have in my country, in my family was that I always believes to the art of possible, never, never, never abandon or never uh, avoid complexity, never avoid the things who are not you know just now. Tomorrow was always more important for me than the day, today. You know, it's very important just not to dream, but to look far away for the good. This
0: has been a most extraordinary hour. Thank you to my colleague and friend Omar Boom, and above all, thank you to Mr. André Azoulay. It's really been an honor having you on this episode of Then and Now. May your work continue to bring rich fruits to the world.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Omar. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Maya. And
0: thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at history.ucla.edu. L U S K I N Center at history.ucla.edu. And special thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a pleasant and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.